Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna, and me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Ellie and Alessandro from Starkware to talk about Starks. First, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, POA Network. POA Network has published a threshold cryptography Rust library that is used in their implementation of the Honey Badger BFT consensus algorithm. It can generate a set of key pairs such that, for example, any four key holders can collaborate to sign or decrypt messages, but fewer than four wouldn't be able to. Honey Badger BFT uses threshold signatures to encrypt lists of transactions for censorship resistance and to create random values that can be used as a defense against some attacks. To learn more about threshold cryptography and how to use it, check out the latest POA Network Medium post at medium.com slash POA minus network. So thank you again, POA Network. Lastly, if you want to support this show or if you want to just get in touch, our links, as always, are in the show notes. Now here's our interview with Ellie and Alessandro. This is an episode that we've been very excited about recording for some time. Starks first hit our radar when we were doing our research, I think around the first Zero Knowledge Summit, and it's come up repeatedly through our Zero Knowledge series, so the episodes that we're doing on Zero Knowledge topics. Um, I would say, just for our listeners, this is a relatively advanced topic, so if you want some background into zero-knowledge proofs, CK snarks, and maybe some other zero-knowledge systems, check out the series on the menu bar at zeroknowledge.fm. But now, let's start our interview with the guys from Starkware. Ellie and Alessandro, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, so maybe we should uh, start with a quick intro, um, do our normal thing of kicking off, talking a little bit about yourselves and how you got into the blockchain space. I'm Eli Ben Sasson. My involvement in blockchain started many years ago, uh, though I didn't know it at the time, um, when I was doing my postdoc around 2001 at MIT and Harvard. I started uh, getting interested into something called uh, the PCP theorem, probabilistically checkable proofs. And it's a very mathy topic that's uh, related to uh, what later became to be known as uh, Starks. Um, and I've been interested in this topic ever since for the past uh, 17 years or something like that. And slowly over time, what started off as very abstract mathematical theorems and understandings got uh, reduced uh, slowly uh, into uh, code and uh, systems that are very relevant to uh, blockchains because they allow one to solve problems like uh, scalability and privacy in blockchains. Did you come to it from a computer science background or a math background? Like what was your angle into it? Good question. I was uh, doing theoretical computer science, which is sort of somewhere in between. It definitely uses very mathematical, formal methods, but uh, to answer and address questions that are about computers and computation. All right. Alessandro, how about you? Okay. Hi, uh, I am Alessandro Chiesa. I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley and uh, I do research in uh, complexity theory, uh, theoretical cryptography and applied cryptography. My background was initially first in mathematics, so that's my I did my undergrad at MIT in mathematics. Though after that, I switched to theoretical computer science for my PhD. And uh, ever since uh, I have done uh, research, I have been involved in uh, um, so research around the, the topic of uh, realistically checkable proofs, which Ellie mentioned earlier, as well as uh, uh, cryptographic proofs, uh, which uh, use these tools uh, uh, to achieve strong privacy and efficiency properties, some of which are, uh, again, strongly related to, to Starks that we will discuss today. So I'm very curious to hear, when did you guys meet? And how did Starkware happen? Uh, when we met, uh, it was very... Uh, that's a, so it was summer of 2010. Alessandro, I, I was back then a professor at Technion. Alessandro 
was, uh, I think, starting his PhD under Silvio Micali at MIT. And um, he came to spend the summer uh, at uh, Technion. And uh, we worked together back then with Iran uh, Fromer, who was from Tel Aviv University, and Daniel Genkin, who was a student at Technion at the time. And we sort of started hacking at it. And it's been already eight years since then. A lot of fun. Yeah, it was a, a very fun eight years, and uh, that was uh, certainly a, a very fun uh, summer. And also, should you know, keep thanking Ellie for hosting me then. Did you? Was it then that you kind of realized that you wanted to do something like Starkware? Hell no! <laughs> no Things way! Were... <laughs> no way! I mean, we had a much. I mean, it would be. It would be an, uh, an an overstatement to say that we had a very fuzzy understanding of uh, uh, applications, and uh, we were barely, you know, getting to the point of uh, okay, let's see if the, we can even uh, sort of run this in a way that it holds on any non-trivial computation. Like this was sort of things were just too slow back then. We didn't know as many nowhere near the, the number of things we know today about the entire space of applications and possible techniques. Uh, a lot has changed, even though we, you know, we had a good place to start from. But, so. At least from my point of view, I had no clue in the world and no hopes, whatever, that any of that stuff would be even close to practical or interest anyone outside of academic circles. And even inside academic circles, I had no, no idea why someone would uh, you know, be interested in what we were doing. Seriously. That's amazing. It was just, it was just this, like, you guys were just... Very, like there were very few people into this stuff, I imagine, at the time. So it's like, oh, cool. There's other people doing this thing I'm into. I don't know what we were thinking when we started to implement <laughs> it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, right. It's uh, it's curiosity. The challenge was uh, was great. Actually, I remember uh, when we submitted a paper about one of our early sort of uh, uh, works on uh, PCP efficiency and. Uh, I still remember one of the reviewers from the conference that sort of commented on our paper as. Uh, Something like laying a siege on the problem of PCP efficiency, because like, the, the paper just gave off this aura of like Im immense and possibly hopeless <laughs> work <laughs> on this problem. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, cool. I mean, like two years or three years after we had uh, you know so much work, and we were able to um, prove a computation that does four operations where each one of the operations is do nothing and it took the prover like uh, 10 hours and this was after so much sweat and blood what was the beginning of starkware when did it start and what is it for what is starkware there for so yeah uh, let me just uh, say briefly a little bit about the company we incorporated exactly one year ago uh four co-founders alessandro myself uh, Michael Yatsev, who's the uh, chief architect, Uri Kolodny is the CEO. By now, we're uh, about uh, 20 people in the company. Almost all of them are in engineering, and they are steeped deeply in math and, and, you know, and writing good code. Um, we incorporated to use uh, Starks in order to solve scalability and also privacy uh, problems in blockchain. We raised uh, $36 million in two rounds of equity uh, from a bunch of uh, notable entities. Uh, Paradigm uh, led our second round. Um, we also got a sizable grant from the Ethereum Foundation. And um, our first move is going to be to deploy at the end of Q1 a solution for scaling DEXs by putting a verifier on-chain and the prover node being off-chain. And later on, we would like to offer Starks for scalability and later on for privacy as well across uh, multiple blockchains and in as many use cases as we can afford to put them on. Are you looking into other, like, is Starks going to be the center of all of these systems or are you also doing research on other zero-knowledge systems? Our focus is on Starks, but we're, of course, uh, deeply steeped into ZK Starks and Zcash. And we're fully aware of other you know, beautiful developments in our area, bulletproofs and recursive snarks and uh, other things. As we, I think, uh, try to explain, we think there are some core attributes of Starks, uh, you know, the transparent nature, post-quantum security, the efficiency of the prover and verifier that make them 
a really good uh, kind of technology for solving uh, scalability and privacy on blockchains. So that's going to be our main focus in the near future. I have a question sort of for both of you. What got you originally into blockchain technology? Or when did that start to really come into your purview? It came, I mean, it was around 2013, 2014. And the culmination of that was the zero cash paper. The point was that um, if you try, yeah, we were already deeply building, I mean, both of us together were working since 2010 on implementing uh, you know, various kinds of proof systems. Uh, snarks and what later became uh, starts. And if you go around trying to look for examples where this makes sense and, and can be used in the conventional world of banks and healthcare institutions and so on, they are occupied by big trusted parties. And there it doesn't make that much sense to add this new technology as it does for blockchains. And in blockchains, it makes much more sense. Or to put it more uh, starkly, uh, forgive the pun, um, if you go to people in the conventional world and tell them, oh, we have this new thing, you know, uh, it's your knowledge proofs and so on, someone can prove something to others, then they will start asking, wait, who's going to prove what to whom? Is the bank going to prove to you that they're okay or the other way around? And if you go and talk to people in the blockchain space, they'll ask you, Where's the code? You know, when can we use it? Here are five things we need to do with it. I guess the space is just like a perfect trial ground for all of this stuff. That's cool. Yeah, I would second that in, in that, uh, I mean, earlier on, the theoretical value of these notions of uh, sort of proofs that certify long computations that are themselves, you know, very short and easy to verify. Uh, theoretical value was very clear. And so the potential... Uh, use cases could in principle be many, but uh, obviously you want to try to uh, figure out which ones are actually most uh, uh, compelling and, and clearest to the public uh, that maybe could have uh, you know more impact. In this case, uh, an application to money was rather uh, convenient because it is a notion that everybody understands. So I, I don't, you know, it's always hard to look back and uh, and rationalize uh, the way sort of things go, but. Uh, I think uh, it was maybe not, not too surprising that the first uh, sort of real application, uh, which was the zero cash protocol, which uh, both Eli and I co-authored with uh, our other great colleagues, was uh, something that not only was, uh, I think, uh, academically interesting protocol, it was the first time you could uh, realize uh, you know, fully anonymous peer-to-peer payments, but also it was uh, 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 an application that uh, many other people found interesting and eventually sort of something that was, was born purely as an academic paper eventually became a startup that uh, also both of us co-founded also a few years ago and uh, eventually turned into something real. Uh, and here you're talking about, you're talking about Zcash. Right. I mean, the use of uh, a, a, a sort of highly efficient uh, and in this case also private uh, uh, cryptographic proofs to do something useful. In this case, was protecting uh, sort of user privacy. Because it has to do with a notion that is uh, everybody understands money, then uh, this is a great uh, sort of a place to, uh, to, to start experimenting with this technology as opposed to some, I don't know, potentially arcane notion of compliance between banks and governments. I mean, like, who cares, right? I mean, it is important, of course, but... Uh, it is much less of a easy story to communicate. I guess you also don't have to worry about all the stakeholders and the politics that you'd have to play in order to get those other agencies on board. What you're talking about here is Zcash and the zero cash paper that you guys co-authored. About two months ago, we had Zuko on the podcast as well. And he told the story coming much more, he was definitely coming from like decentralized storage. And it was the zero coin paper that was his first turning point that led to this. Did the zero coin paper also cross your path? Did this, was this something that also kind of brought you into the space? Um, so it definitely crossed our paths and the zero cash paper is, uh, you know, in, in early talks, I often described it as the team of zero coin meets, uh, our team, which was doing back then, uh, um, ZK snarks. And, um, but, we didn't wait for Bitcoin or for uh, the zero coin paper. You know, as is often the case in science, there are many different efforts that don't necessarily know of each other uh, when they start. So, for instance, I mean, Alessandro and I and our co-authors 
have been working on on our stuff since 2010 and um around 2013 which was before the zero cash paper we sort of were trying to find um places to you know market our uh let's call them zk engines right it then dawned on us that you know decentralized uh cryptocurrencies back then there was pretty much only uh, bitcoin are an ideal place to sort of market this kind of uh technology and science because the lack of trusted parties there really demands uh you know powerful cryptographic tools mm. and then we did hear of the zero coin paper and we you know and i guess they also heard of us and we immediately sort of approached each other uh they knew much more about um you know how bitcoin works for us it was sort of a bit newer we had this uh, shiny new engine that uh, you know we've been studying the theory of implementing uh, the zk snarks and sort of uh, you know was a match i don't know if made in heaven but uh, yeah in particular you know one should acknowledge a zero cash paper was uh, you know certainly i mean each each paper on its own is, is a contribution and then zero cash uh, uh, may not have been possible without uh, uh, both the, the the expertise and contributions of prior lines of work one of them on uh, anonymous uh, uh, digital digital cash that includes both zero cash zero coin and uh, and uh, other papers that came before it as well as on the other uh, on the other uh, 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 um, line of work uh, all this work on uh, zk snarks it was like a, a yeah a really great collaboration that uh, uh, led to greater efficiency and greater privacy actually so for example before zero cash it was not known how to fully hide everything about a payment but uh, that's something that uh, we did we did manage to to design for zero cash yeah. i wanted to ask if you were ever part of the zcash company yeah, I mean, we're co-founders and uh, we, we, we took an active role in technology transfer at, uh, at, uh, at the very beginning. Obviously, you know, we, you know, we're also researchers and so we don't, uh, we didn't participate on a day-to-day -day basis, but, uh, you know, at the conception and uh, when you start a company, there is uh, quite a bit of uh, work that goes into that. Then you try to set it up in such a way that it can be successful uh, through the energy and, 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 and abilities of uh, early employees, which it has been. And we sort of, there's a wonderful team working at Zcash now. Both the zero coin and zero cash papers, this is all about snarks, which is where you guys were working. I guess that was what you were working on at the time. How did you get from snarks to starks? And I, I'd be, I'm really curious about this. Like, at what point did you decide, actually, let's put snarks kind of on the shelf and let's like focus more on these starks, which is like an older... An older concept. Maybe we can also talk about the history of Starks in that. Yeah, so I mean, it, it may seem from the outside that you know we were first working on Snarks and deploying them in Zcash, and then moved on to Starks. But that's actually not you know this is what maybe the public sees from the outside. From the inside, it was if anything the other way around, and also you know it's a more complicated story. So. Um, Starks uh, go back to what's called PCP techniques, and uh, uh, you know both Alessandro and I have been working on them, actually even prior to uh, working on on Snarks, and we never gave up on them, and we never gave up on you know Snark research either. What happened is that uh, you know Snark technology matured earlier and was deployed in Zcash and. Stark technology, you know, has fewer cryptographic assumptions and hence is a little bit harder to actually deploy. In practice, took a longer time. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, also comment that sort of zero cash as a protocol doesn't particularly care what cryptographic proof system you use to instantiate it. What matters is that you use something as efficient as possible. So it just so happens that uh, when it was written and when the when when, it, when the company started, the sort of the a, a most sort of a suitable uh, primitive on the shelf was uh, ZK Snarks. But, uh, you know, we love all these uh, cryptographic, cryptographic proof systems and we try to improve all of them because uh, they have, so far they, they, they have slightly different trade-offs. Eli uh, uh, already alluded to the fact that uh, Starks uh, uh, sort of make a parsimonious use of uh, cryptography. Uh, and so we'll, we'll discuss this uh, later how it relates to maybe post-quantum security and 
other advantages. But uh, because in uh, ZK-SNARKs, you kind of make a heavier use of cryptography, you could get, go farther earlier in terms of efficiency. And that's why they were kind of ready to go earlier. You know, we still work on, uh, uh, on sort of all these technologies. And uh, yeah, right now, maybe there's an emphasis on Starks. I should add that, uh, at least in my case, I, I certainly felt uh, greater personal motivation to uh, make progress and research Starks after the experience with Zcash because it highlighted the difficulties of dealing with trusted setup in the real world. Uh, just to remind uh, the listeners for in Zcash, because it uses ZK Snarks, there's a need for a trusted party to conduct uh, an operation at the beginning of time to generate system parameters to be used for proving and verifying. And uh, this trusted party, uh, if corrupted, you know, could uh, generate uh, valid-looking proofs for sort of false statements. And this is the reason why in the real world you get around this problem using uh, sort of real-world cryptographic ceremonies where you distribute the uh, responsibility of generating the system parameters to a collection of parties in such a way that only if all of them are simultaneously colluding, this will happen. But if at least one participating party is honest, then this, the setup is secure. In Starks, there is no such thing, okay? You can just uh, agree on a hash function, which is the only cryptography that it uses, and, uh, and deploy the system. So it was very compelling, the, the prospect of uh, uh, getting to the point where we have as efficient uh, cryptographic proof systems that we can just go and use without any of this mess. I certainly felt you know, a great personal motivation to try to go after this goal that we, we were anyways pursuing already, but you know, probably there was some sort of time dependency there in terms of uh, emphasis. I want to know very before we dive in even deeper into Starks, where does where does Starks come from? We've talked about uh, zero knowledge proofs and we've talked about the origin of Snarks, but we've never actually talked about the origin of Starks. So um, yeah, so I mean, Starks go back to works in the early 1990s. Pretty much, uh, you know, some of the famous works of. Uh, Babai, a researcher, a brilliant researcher from Chicago, and uh, Levin Segedi Fortnow from the early 1990s already pretty much said that, you know, using these new techniques that, that are called, uh, you know, the PCP theorem and things related to that, you could already reach uh, amazing scalability in which um, once a prover writes down a proof, the verifier can check it exponentially faster. And this holds actually for any reasonable, conceivable computation. I mean, formally for any language in non-deterministic exponential time. Sorry for the math the terminology. It, but it means for any, for any reasonable and conceivable computation, um, you could speed up the process of verifying it without any trust assumptions by an exponential factor. And this was completely mind-blowing at the time. So this was already in, you know, 1991, 1992. And in fact, maybe just a sh short parenthesis, sorry, Eli. If you pull up the paper and you can, there are certain sentences there that are a, a very visionary. So here's one. Uh, they state already in the abstract, a single reliable PC can monitor the operation of a herd of supercomputers working with possibly extremely powerful but unreliable software and untested hardware. This is hinting at this exponential speedup where you have a single PC that, by virtue of running a verifier, is able to check the uh, correct computation of you know, a herd of supercomputers, which you know, are supercomputers. They, are, they have many more resources. So um, already back in the mid-1990s, it was known how to speed up the verification process exponentially, right? But... Um, what took another, what is it, uh, 20 years or so to reach was how to speed up the process of generating the proof so that the verifier could enjoy this uh, exponential speed up in checking. And this took a pretty long while and a lot of, uh, you know, breakthroughs were needed uh, along the way. Um, and all of this, uh, you know, culminated in the end in, in, in you know, code base and systems that are what we call Starks. So again, 30 years ago already, uh, exponential speed up of verification was understood, but generating the proofs was a big challenge. Uh, it still is a challenge, but uh, by now, uh, you know, we've made enough progress to actually uh, work with such systems that have a lot of other good benefits. They're plausibly post-quantum secure. 
They have pretty efficient proving and verification time. They have no trusted setup and very minimal cryptographic assumptions. Um, and they're, you know, the parts in them that are proven mathematically to be correct are rather a large portion of them. So they're very little or very few assumptions and the assumptions are kind of pretty well understood. I remember when, I think it was when Zcash was launched, I started digging into it, trying to understand how it worked, what it was. And I, I was watching several talks. I, I watched one talk on Starks. Uh, I can't remember if it was Ueli or Alessandro giving the talk. But anyway, it was a breakdown of sort of experiments with Starks and their performance characteristics and uh, kind of going over how they work. And the examples were, you know, it was like, oh, well, yeah, I can see why this is not reasonable right now, where it was like, oh, to do this simple computation, you needed 130 gigabytes of RAM or something like that. And, um, you know, it was just like not tractable, whereas, whereas Snarks, on the other hand, was completely reasonable to, to compute, but had this sort of toxic uh, wastes thing. Has... Starks moved on from there like I know that we're not really talking about even that range anymore I mean it's already much better as far as I understand than compared to I don't know how long ago this talk was let's say three years ago um, or like what are the boundaries right now for Starks maybe to one high level point there is that something that has changed uh, quite dramatically since uh, maybe uh, let's say 2014, 2015, which is around when uh, uh, um, sort of Zcash uh, started, is that uh, Elie and I and our colleagues have uh, uh, introduced uh, new models uh, uh, for realizing Starks. So while in the 90s you would build Starks uh, from uh, these uh, PCPs that uh, that uh, Elie mentioned. Today, the way you do it, you would rather do. Uh, you would rather instead design an interactive PCP or a multi-round PCP. Essentially, it's a it's a more flexible model within which you can achieve your exponential speedups, and within which it is much much easier to, in relative terms, uh, to make it so that the prover can generate these proofs for the verifier. And uh, so, while a few years ago, yes, we did have these prototype systems that would take hundreds of gigabytes of memory. Uh, that is, uh, a, 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 to some extent, not the case anymore. Uh, we have much better constructions, and it's not just because more time has passed and we've written more papers, but also something qualitative has happened. There was an, an inflection point around 2016 where we introduced this notion, which we call interactive oracle proofs, denoting the fact that there is an interaction between the proof and the verifier. Uh, it's just a model, okay, uh, where these proofs are generated, and then this interaction gets compiled into like a short non-interactive proof. And uh, producing the, the information for this interaction is much easier than it is for uh, PCPs. So the, the numbers we would have today, we, we don't know how to achieve uh, uh, with PCPs alone. So this was something new that happened from the 90s. It's not just perfecting 90s technology, it is moving sort of beyond that. Yeah, it's, it's important for me to add and stress that, uh, I mean, only, you know, on this uh, interview, perhaps it's a... Uh, only me and Alessandro, but there, you know, we have many very important co-authors going a long way back. I mean, specifically, I want to highlight and mention, you know, the uh, involvement and uh, uh, contribution of our, our co-founder, Michael Yabtsev, who did his uh, PhD uh, under me at Technion. And, uh, you know, there are many other co-authors that uh, we, and of course, we're, you know, as they say, uh, dwarfs on the on the shoulders of giants and you know this goes back a very long way so i just don't want the listeners to get the impression that only those speaking on this uh, you know podcast uh, yeah yeah far from it also should highlight uh, 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 so michael is a student uh, uh, was a student of Elia at Technion. i should also highlight uh, one of my students uh, nick spooner uh, who also you know played a major role in in uh, uh, some of these works so we've started to talk about Starks in comparison to Snarks and some of the sort of new features of Starks just in terms of its usability. Um, but can we, 
I'd love to use some time to just dive into Starks. You have gone on stages explaining Starks. I can just imagine you have to do a lot of education and communication around this so that people understand what it is. How would you explain Starks on a podcast with no whiteboard? <laughs> yeah, so <I'd> <laughs> this say, is the um, challenge of this episode. Yeah, let's try to take this challenge. So, so I'd say, first of all, a Stark is a special kind of a proof. So first of all, maybe what's, what's a proof? So a proof, uh, I mean, imagine you're going out of the grocery store and you're holding, you know, the receipt and you're looking at it and maybe summing up the, you know, the items and checking if the sum that you were asked to pay is correct. What you are essentially doing is verifying a proof. The proof is the receipt. And it is a proof of computational integrity. It sort of asserts and, and proves to you that the sum you were asked to pay is correct. So how do you verify it? You're summing up the items and you're really just re-executing the computation. Okay, but it's a proof. Now, uh, for our listeners who probably know about blockchains, uh, let's jump to an analogy you know, in the blockchain world, you are, you know, you want to verify that, I mean, someone told you that over the past 10 blocks, you know, uh, she earned, uh, she has gotten hold of, of 10 coins, right? So what would a receipt or a proof look for that? It would probably be something that has all of the transactions in the last 10 blocks. And then some of them are highlighted, you know, with, with a, like a, a marker, those are the transactions that, that account for her funds. And then she would also probably need to prove to you that she controls the keys that hold those funds. So it's a very, um, uh, you know, it's a very long kind of receipt and would be very hard to check. And it would also uh, compromise her privacy. And, you know, you now you know a lot, whole lot about uh, her coins. So, okay, Starks uh, give you a way of generating a receipt for, you know, holding 10 coins in the last, uh, uh, you know, 10 blocks without showing you, first of all, which coins they are and without giving you all of the information in the transactions that went there. But still, you get the same assurance um, that it is correct. So it's sort of a very succinct receipt, very short, much shorter than the computation you would need to do to find those coins. And still it has the same level of assurance that everything is uh, correct and has computational integrity. So this is a good sort of high level overview and explanation of zero knowledge proofs, how they apply to these systems but I'm curious to dig into more detail on what the difference is between, let's say, Snarks and Starks, because what you just described can be achieved with either, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, good point. So maybe one way to clarify the relation is to uh, note that uh, a Stark is, a, you know, to some extent, a special case of a Snark, right? So it is a Snark with extra properties uh, that we like. Okay, what are these extra properties that they make this uh, uh, sort of subset of constructions particularly appealing? One is that the trusted setup is to some extent trivial. Okay, it's public. Uh, there is no toxic waste. You only have sort of public randomness. In terms of concrete terms, uh, in the real world, this public randomness would simply come from uh, agreeing to use a certain hash function, for example. Shadow of D6 or Ketchak or Blake, you know, some hash function that we decide to use as a, to some extent, source of public randomness. Okay? So you see, this is a special case of trusted setup. Now, because the setup now looks like this, then it is very easy to deploy uh, because we don't need to do ceremonies to agree on a hash function. Now, because this is the only cryptography that a Stark uses, you also get uh, additional benefits. One of them is uh, plausible post-quantum security. I say plausible because, of course, you know, we don't know uh, if and when uh, a, 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 a new understanding in the efficient quantum algorithms uh, would uh, prove otherwise. Uh, but this, this is normal in cryptography. When we talk about post-quantum security for any primitive, we mean plausible post-quantum security. So why is it the case that uh, uh, using this type of cryptography could suggest uh, uh, post-quantum security? It is because hash functions uh, such as Chateau D6 and Ketchak, they don't use algebraic structure. Yeah, so for the most part, algebraic structure, which is typically what efficient quantum algorithms 
exploit to sort of uh, gain speedups over classical algorithms. So these are two advantages that pop right out from uh, the feature that we're only using uh, sort of uh, these uh, non-algebraic hash functions in our construction. I mean, one way to see a difference between a start and a snark is maybe to look at the, you know, what the acronym means. So both of them have ARC, which pretty much has the same meaning. Um, the letter N in the snark means non-interactive, which means that it must be a one-shot proof. In a start, you don't actually require that. You could have it be non-interactive, but you could also have it be interactive. So not all starks can be snarks. That's one thing. Not all snarks can be starks because the letter T stands for transparent, which means that you have no trusted setup. And uh, basically, it only uses uh, what's known as public randomness. So there are some settings in which a start can be a snark and a snark can be a start, but the differences are very uh, important. You know, a start requires no trusted setup. That's one of its core properties. Uh, whereas a snark requires it to be non-interactive, only a one-shot, um, you know, message. Uh, so that's essentially the difference between a stark and a snark. The most important to the public part is the lack of a trusted setup, which is a requirement in uh, starks. When you say that it can be interactive, would that mean... So we, we've done an episode where we talked about the interactive proofs and then the non-interactive proofs. But if you're saying that Starks could be interactive, would that mean then you're having a conversation back and forth between prover and verifier until there's like a probabilistic? Yes, but but probably better uh, would be to use a blockchain. Okay, the transparency in a Stark means that all the verifier ever sends is basically public randomness, or you know, as long as we have a source of randomness that you're willing to trust. Um, that could be what the verifier does. So let's move to a blockchain. In a blockchain, you actually have this sort of temporal event of, you know, a new block coming with some block header and something that uh, can be assumed and is already assumed in, you know, practically by all blockchains to be pretty random. So in a blockchain, you could definitely instantiate a Stark in a setting where there's a first message from the prover. Then you wait, you know, for let's say six blocks to transpire. Then you get randomness from the latest of these. And this goes back to the prover and he completes the proof. And this actually has a lot of benefits, both from the theoretical point of view, because it means that actually the systems are a little bit safer. Uh, the assumptions that you are making when analyzing this are a little bit better and more well understood. You only need collision-resistant hash functions as opposed to using the random oracle hypothesis. And another even more practical implication is that you could conceivably work with such a start with a lower uh, security parameter. So you could work with a probability of error of only, let's say, 60 bits of security rather than 120 or 80 bits of security, which would be required if you want to make it a one-shot, uh, you know, non-interactive setting. So there are theoretical benefits to using interaction, especially over a blockchain, and there are actually also practical uh, implications to using it in that way. And we already had a number of, uh, you know, projects that we talked to that, uh, you know, were telling us, oh, we are anyways using interaction and randomness from the blockchain. So why not use it to make things both safer and uh, more efficient? And we said, yeah, you could definitely be, you could definitely be doing this with the start. There's a lot of people trying to use block headers for randomness and with varying success, there are a lot of attack vectors like miners can, can choose to manipulate the transactions in such a way that they affect the randomness. Uh, I'm sure though that you've thought of and i know many others have thought of other ways to achieve randomness on a blockchain um that's sort of the the hype right now is how to generate randomness like public randomness and there's a lot of research and effort going into that like what's called beacon chains and random beacons and bls signatures to generate randomness and things like yes, that. yes i i would i would maybe you know counter that by saying that if a blockchain is already dealing with the issue of generating randomness and says we you know are generating a beacon of randomness one way or another anyways because we need it for all those other things then 
you could uh, plug that in to a Stark, right? And uh, exactly. I mean, so so even. I mean, I, I'm just sort of in my head seeing all the people crying out about using block headers as randomness because it's it's one of those things that like all the core devs always complain about. But we are, I mean, uh, they're complaining, but we are using them even in Bitcoin, right? You yeah. are using part of the input to the next, uh, you know, block header is the current block header. Yeah. So we are already using this and I think it's pretty unavoidable. I mean, we don't really know of any good way to completely resolve this, but as a practical matter, we're all using, you know, various sources of randomness that we understand that they are not, none of them is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we currently don't have anything better, and and that's I think that's Precisely. my point is um, there are better things in the works, and you could plug that into this structure. I think that's an important note. Yes, um, you had mentioned that Starks are post quantum secure. Are Snarks not post quantum secure? The ones that are currently deployed, they are definitely not. And now there are okay. a, a sort of theoretical constructions that rely on. Uh, assumptions that are believed to be uh, a post-quantum secure, but those are sort of, uh, you know, sort of mostly theoretical uh, value so far and uh, practical value uh, may or may not uh, be fulfilled in the future. But you know, the ones that are currently deployed most definitely are not uh, uh, post-quantum secure. Is that because of the randomness or is that no, because of... Just even, not... uh, even if uh, sort of you put the trusted setup aside, it simply has to do with the fact that uh, the cryptographic hardness ultimately relies on uh, something called the discrete logarithm problem over, you know, finite abelian groups. And uh, um, quantum computers can actually uh, extract discrete logarithms efficiently while uh, 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 under suitable settings, classical algorithms are believed not to. Uh, and so this difference is what creates the sort of quantum insecurity. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to add to this, maybe, you know, as a, as a good rule of thumb to the listeners, um, any um, crypto system that relies on things like it's hard to factor a number, it's hard to find a discrete log, and other things that are have this number theoretic flavor, things about, uh, you know, prime numbers and factorization. So quantum computers if they ever reach up to scale are uh, known to efficiently break such systems so rsa diffie hellman key exchange elliptic curve cryptography um and uh, the snarks used by zcash as well as other uh, you know uh, um, you know more recent suggestions such as the beautiful uh, bulletproofs as your knowledge system they rely on such hardness assumptions and they are known to be attackable by quantum computers um, as, as we said, uh, Starks make much leaner reliance on cryptography and essentially they only need things like, you know, uh, hash functions. And uh, we don't know currently of quantum computer attacks that completely break, uh, you know, the security of hash functions. So that's why Starks uh, are uh, plausibly post-quantum secure. Is the post-quantum quality something that you think about a lot, or is this just one smaller feature of Starks? Right now, what we really benefit from is the, the fact that uh, we make a lean use of cryptography. We're only using lightweight cryptography. This means that overall, for example, the prover is uh, easier to optimize because uh, you can, it is easier to bring the relevant algorithms closer to metal. Okay, You can optimize them uh, uh, more and more uh, because you're not making use of heavyweight cryptography and so sort of overall uh, sort of things a bit faster uh, and you know in, in the future maybe it's even an easier task to uh, re realize these algorithms directly in some sorts of hardware which is something that may happen it would be relatively harder to do that for other things like snarks that make uh, use of public key cryptography for example okay uh, Post-quantum security, I think it's uh, it, it's nice you know it, it's uh, as researchers uh, we take a long-range view of our work so it is uh, uh, pleasant to know that uh, whatever we design today uh, uh, may, you know, if efficient enough and interesting enough, uh, uh, withstand the test of time. Uh, I think that that, that is wonderful. But uh, you know, whether it has an immediate impact today, that's uh, that's uh, probably less clear. The post-quantum part, the efficiency part, obviously, immediate immediate impact. 
I wanted to just bring back a little bit and and uh, talk a bit more about comparison and how these things are actually constructed. So, um, in in all of our previous episodes on snarks and zero knowledge proving systems, we we talk about these circuits of logic gates and you know that this particular algorithm is this many gates or whatever, and and or this system can handle this many gates. Do you still construct a Stark in the same kind of system? And if so, can you take the circuit of, like, let's take the Zcash circuit and use a Stark instead, or are they incompatible? How does that compare? Yeah, um, I think it's a really good question. So um, one of the core challenges and core magical attributes of a Stark is that the verifier, nor no one on behalf of the verifier, ever unrolls a circuit. So basically, the verifier gets a very succinct program that could specify a very long computation, and that's all the verifier works with. In a snark, someone, it's called the you know, a generator, or the, you know, the entity entrusted with generating the parameters, would unroll this computation into a circuit and generate something, you know, one element per gate. In a start, this does not happen. So you have to work much harder in order to allow the verifier to check a very long computation without ever unrolling it. And the way this magic happens is you use a whole lot of beautiful linear algebra related to succinct representation of uh, groups so again, I apologize for the math language, but that's really the best way I can explain it. There is succinctness through structure, and the structure is algebraic structure, and that's something that is heavily used in uh, Stark. By the way, don't worry, don't worry about using math stuff. I feel like I think our our listeners are going to love that. Actually, <laughs> they're going to even if it's challenging, they'll be like, "I'm going to figure this out." So the analogy here <laughs> is uh, you know, whether you spec. So you have some statement of interest, a computation, okay, and uh, the way that it is represented in uh, uh, snarks, typically, uh, though not, not in all snarks, is you just unroll the computation. You literally lay out every gate and every wire. And actually what happens during the trusted setup is that a trusted party looks at this layout of the computation and kind of encodes it. This, this is basically the system parameters that go in the sky for everybody to use, to prove and verify, okay? But you don't have to do that necessarily, right? There are computations that are easily specified with much less. So think about the difference between the lines of machine code that it takes to specify a program, okay? That's just basically specifying the computation at hand versus the cycles it takes on a machine to execute this program. So you could have many more cycles than you have lines in your machine code, okay? So Starks work with some algebraic uh, analog of machine code, okay? So the verifier only has in mind this sort of algebraic machine code, even though it is checking the execution of it, okay? It doesn't have to think about unrolling it. This is where the exponential speedup comes from. doesn't have to do this uh, work explicitly. It's only all implicitly done using the algebraic structure that uh, Eli mentioned earlier. That, that's very interesting. So you can sort of almost think of it as uh, there's this, you know, Stark assembly language and yes. you have a Stark VM and every program, you know, written in this assembly executed in this VM automatically gets a proof. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, so not, not exactly, but this is the, the exact uh, uh, sort of a high-level analogy, right? This is sort of at least what I even think, okay, in my head. So sort of, uh, you have to associate mathematical concepts, but this is precisely what's going on. Right? So you have some, yeah, algebraic computer relative to which you're proving statements without unrolling them. So Alessandro, I actually saw you speak at, um, it was in San Francisco at an event that the Decrypt Capital guys were putting on. Um, and you had used the term snark instead of snark or stark. So what's a snark? So <clears throat> snark uh, uh, literally means succinct, non-interactive argument. Okay, this denotes uh, proofs that are short and easy to verify in a, that are written down as non-interactively. Sometimes uh, we also discuss snarks with a K at the end. And, it, and the difference between this is rather 
uh, important technically, though from uh, if from a high level perspective, it's uh, not not a big deal. But let me just at high level mention what is the difference. The K at the end denotes that uh, actually all of these cryptographic proof systems, whether we're explicit about it or not, are not just proof systems. They are so-called proofs of knowledge. This essentially means, that, for example, that if uh, a prover uh, is proving to you that uh, uh, a certain image of a hash function uh, has, a, has a pre-image, they themselves know the pre-image. It's not that just it exists. Of course, maybe a hash function has a pre-image to a given image. That's generally true because hash functions, for example, compress. So, sort of, you know, almost everything in the in the domain uh, in the range has a pre-image. Uh, but in cryptography, it's important to know that the person generating the proof actually knew the uh, uh, the secret, the or, or the piece of information he was trying to assert uh, knowledge of. This is known as proof of knowledge. And sometimes in talks, because this is a, a, a technical notion. We just shove it under the carpet, even though we use it all over the place. It's important to know that like, technically these must be proofs of knowledge to, to be used in most uh, scenarios. Uh, but, you know, it's a rather slippery concept, so we just sometimes ignore it. Uh. So we've talked a lot about Starks. We've, I think we've managed to uncover a little bit of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like we said, you know, there's all this information about like, uh, you know, uh, Starks aren't fast enough, even Snarks are not fast or too big or whatever. Um, there's obviously a lot of work has been done. It's gotten a lot better than, since a few years ago because of like actual new research. Uh, but you as a company and as a d individual researchers, I'm sure, you know, have huge plans uh, what are the problems right now that you're you're trying to solve, and um, you know when when are we seeing Starks in use everywhere? <laughs> so concretely, uh, what we're trying to do at Starkware is uh, you know by the end of uh, Q1 2019, so beginning of April, we want to deploy onto Ethereum. A uh, sorry, onto Ethereum testnet, not the mainnet yet. Um, basically, a start verifier for DEXs for compressing, uh, you know, offering and showing scalability through uh, through starts. So you will have a verifier that will allow a prover node to prove that it processed many many uh, DEX transactions. And you will thus maintain the non-custodian um, you know, part of the DEX, but you will achieve far greater scalability than you can in the current state where everything goes on the mainnet. So um, hopefully the world will be seeing you know, real Starks in, in the wild um, within roughly three months. And uh, after some testing period, we hope this will be a solution that will be integrated into various uh, actual DEXs and help them solve their acute scalability problem that they are faced with right now. I just want to emphasize, so even though this is the zero knowledge podcast, in this solution, we won't be addressing privacy at all. We won't be using the zero knowledge aspect of the start. We will be using only the scalability attribute of it, which is the exponential compression of uh, computation. Typically, we refer to the efficiency property alone as succinct proofs. These are sort of proofs of computational integrity, uh, whereby the size of the proof and then the time to verify the proof are sort of exponentially uh, uh, smaller than uh, sort of naively re-executing uh, the original computation. And I imagine you can also use this, like we've had, we had a conversation with Eric Tang from LivePeer months ago about off-chain computation and how you can do stuff off-chain, sort of just like check in with various forms of um, proving systems. I don't even know what you'd call these actually, like, because it can be, it doesn't have to be zero-knowledge proofs, but it could be all sorts of different proofs. Instead of on-chain computation, you have off-chain computation replay, and then on the on-chain you only have the corresponding verifier, which is a much cheaper uh, uh, algorithm to run. Is that what you're talking about here? Are you using an off-chain solution, or is this on-chain? Verifier sits on-chain. Okay. 
I, I just want to clarify, uh, at the end of Q1, it will only appear on the testnet, not on the mainnet. We'll first test it. But um, the verifier will be sitting always on-chain. It will be verifying that an exponentially larger computation has occurred correctly off-chain. And, and this is something that you always, like if you want to do off-chain computation, you always need some on-chain verification aspect. And people like uh, Lightpeer and many others have so far just kind of said, I hope that Li that Truebit solves this problem and I'll just use their solution. And, uh, you know, maybe that works, maybe not, but it's the Truebit solution is, is um, it's a game. It's a, like a game theoretic game of playing out various incentive structures uh, to make sure that the computation at the end is, is correct. But having something like this where it's an actual proof with very high reliability, um, then it changes the story from, you know, we have to do this kind of back and forth between the chain and off chain and uh, have this lottery kind of thing to, uh, to, you know, we can actually verify that this was done correctly. Do you think there are, is there sort of a settling on this being a more plausible scaling solution than those kinds of solutions or is it still debatable? That, that's a debate that the larger community should hold. We strongly believe that this is a very good uh, solution that can help address scalability. Maybe it's not the only solution. I mean, probably it's not the only, I mean, just like with the internet to reach very large scale and so that we can all, you know, converse uh, by, by video chats. It's not one thing that solves it, right? You need fiber optics and better routers and a whole bunch of things. So it's not that, that Starks is one component that solves everything, but we do believe that it's certainly a very important component that should be in the mix of any scalability solution long-term. I think it, it, I mean, obviously something like a TrueBit system depends on the size of the computation as well. And you might have a really, really large, you know, machine learning computation or something done off chain. And then you only like, you can't necessarily verify everything. So it, it's, it's also like a reliability thing, right? Where if it's something that requires a lot of reliability, there's a lot of money hanging on it or something maybe, then you want a proper proof. If it's just, you know, like live peer compressing an image, then it's not that important. Yeah, I mean, the difference between a TrueBit system and something like a Stark is that in TrueBit, you need someone that is trusted by the verifier, someone to act on behalf of the verifier and be non-succinct. Yeah. That someone must run a computation that is as long as what the prover does. In a Stark, a verifier doesn't trust anyone else and still spends only an exponentially smaller amount of computation than the prover. So there's an exponential gap between the job of verifying a, a you know a star proof and the job of you know someone doing the verification of a true bit cycle. Can a Stark computation be non-deterministic? Of course. I mean, well, okay. It really depends. I think uh, one should understand what what non-determinism means. So. A non-deterministic computation, a, a good way to describe it to the listeners, is a computation that requires also extra auxiliary information, things like passwords, you know, my medical or financial data. There is, I mean, there is no real, you know, non-deterministic machine as it was conceived or defined in the 40s or 50s as a machine that actually, you know, guesses uh, we do have that today though where executing the exact same computation on x64 does yield different results sometimes um so i believe this is a mis these are this is the same word referring to two different yeah. things uh so in a computational complexity non-determinism refers to a, a, a very specific feature that actually we do leverage uh quite a lot uh uh, not just in this proof system, but in, across many proof systems. And then, uh, uh, sort of, uh, I guess you're referring to uh, the fact that uh, real-world computer architectures are underspecified, 
and uh, you know different realizations of the same architecture on different uh, uh, sort of hardware chips they, they might uh, behave somewhat differently yeah. maybe one way to resolve it is that we use non-determinism in, in the computational complexity sense but not in the computer architecture sense in a sense that it is important <laughs> in fact this proof system is designed in such a way that a correct computation can only have a, cor- a single correct uh, output and, and that, that's the only thing that the verifier checks if there could be multiple outputs then somehow the, the security proof system wouldn't wouldn't really hold mm. right because what does it mean to check the output yeah i mean so so that's something that um you know a lot of these off-chain solutions struggle with taking live periods an example again they want to run they, w- they want to compress video to x264 and that's um what I would call a, a non-deterministic algorithm because it depends on how much machine time is spent on each frame and that depends on which CPU and at what, what speed and, and like how real time you want things to be and what bits per second you want right. to use. Yeah, but they're using like real architectures. Remember, we are using an algebraic computer that we designed. Yeah. So on this algebraic computer, everything is fully specified. Like every operation has a specific effect on the computation, and we have designed it to be so. Uh, notice also that our algebraic computer is incredibly simpler than real-world architectures, and uh, and and so is the efficiency also of these uh, alternative solutions. I mean, so. Uh, they are much faster because they're running native computation on, on actual computers. So we are sort of running cryptography. It's a much slower process. So I think we're getting close to the end of this episode, but I'd really love to hear where do you see general zero knowledge research going? Like, what do you see coming down the pipeline that's really exciting? Maybe things that you can incorporate into the work that Starkware is doing, or just like generally out there. Personally, I, I hope that uh, there will be a, a greater variety of uh, zero-knowledge proofs that achieve post-quantum security. I think that is a, a, an important long-term goal. So that's something that uh, there certainly there, is, there isn't as much of as I would like to see, and uh, I hope the future brings more of that. Uh, right now, we do have uh, Starks, but uh, you know, it's just one approach potentially out of many to yet to be realized in the future. And uh, so I'm curious to see what those could be. I, I, I'd add to that that, um, you know, two specific things. So, um, zero knowledge is just uh, the first layer of a bigger theme called secure multi-party computation, where there are several parties that each one of them has, you know, some private information and they wish to jointly compute some function. So think of, uh, you know, an auction where everyone wants to put in a bid and you only want the result to be known to the winner, something like that. So uh, that's one area that could, could be deployed later on. And I'll let Alessandro maybe talk about uh, recursion and recursive right. starts. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, the other one is uh, recursion. So the moment you have uh, uh, any succinct uh, uh, proof system where uh, uh, checking a, a computation takes uh, less time uh, than running it, uh, you can do uh, sort of a sort of a crazy idea, which is uh, to recursively invoke the proof system on itself, where you start uh, running proofs of proofs of proofs of proofs. This is no, this is a, something called recursive proof composition. We understand how this works uh, for SNARKs, uh, also in practice, together with Ailey and uh, other uh, great colleagues, uh, Rand Tromer and Madars Virza, we, we demonstrated for the first time uh, a practical recursion of SNARKs, which is actually today used in the Coda protocol, for example. And in principle, this is also possible for Starks. But if you want to try to make that practical, that probably requires uh, 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 some new ideas. And uh, so this is something that we're actively working on. And uh, I at least think that uh, it will uh, lead to uh, even more applications that weren't possible with uh, only single shot Starks. So this is, I think, it's a very exciting direction that, again, uh, Ellie and I have been uh, uh, we were together like two weeks ago. And then we spent uh, almost all of our uh, sort of free time together talking about this topic. So. It's uh, something very, um, uh, very fun and uh, but also challenging problem. I want to maybe just just add that in general, uh, I think Alessandro and I and our you know many colleagues and you know coworkers also at uh, at Starkware are having a lot of uh, not just fun but meaningful interaction on pushing forward both the implementation, the engineering, the product size, but also the very core science and math of it further. And it's tremendously beneficial and fun um, thing that I'm not sure we anticipated would actually happen. It, it's, it's 
It's very sciencey and mathy, and that's a lot of fun. Do you write all of your code in C++ and what part of it are you planning to open source? So the verifier for the um, the verifier for the contract that you know that will work with DEXs is currently being written in Solidity. So our programmers are some of them are writing verifier code in Solidity as we speak and making terrific progress on it. And that part will be a smart contract that will be uh, you know deployed uh, open source. Um, the prover node will, you know, there must be a single entity at first that operates it. Otherwise, you run into further problems of uh, consensus on provers. And um, that will not be open sourced at first. Uh, but we will plan to blog uh, our intentions regarding uh, how we're going to distribute code in a blog post in the very near future. But the prover is written in C++ then, or something else? Yeah, the prover is written in C++ and other things. People definitely are excited about Starks. I think you guys maybe know this. Our listeners may or may not know this, but we started a little Starks learning group uh, about a month or two ago. And it was supposed to be like eight people talking about this topic, and it's turned into like 75 strong, and people really got very excited about this. Um, if anyone wants to join the group, I'll put the link to the Telegram group in the show notes. But um, Definitely, you see a lot of excitement around this. We just want to say, yeah, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having yep. us. Thank you for and thank us. you for the work that you're doing. Keep it up. Um, <laughs> and to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.